My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own unique path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and as you well know, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now today, we're going to be talking about empathy, because yes, the theme of this season is how to crush it without getting crushed, but part of that is that we don't want to crush other people in the process, right? And when you don't have empathy, that is a big problem. Now, I looked up the definition of empathy because I didn't have it off the top of my head, sadly. And it is this. It is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Now, here's the thing. If you listen to the show regularly, you know that I have been railing against narcissism. I mean, it's not a particularly aggressive position who likes a narcissist. But as I think about narcissism, it's kind of the opposite of empathy. And to be a great leader, a great founder, a great entrepreneur, a great friend, family member, all those things, you need to be able to be empathetic. And if you can't do that sustainably, you're going to run into problems because people just won't follow you anymore. They won't listen to you because they know you don't care. Yes, narcissists do tend to win at times. But sustainability in a happy way where you're not crushing people, where you're not getting crushed, that's what I'm talking about. And that requires empathy. And to talk about that today is my guest, Jerry Colonna. Now, Jerry is a leading executive coach who uses the skills he learned as a venture capitalist to help entrepreneurs. He's the co-founder and CEO of Reboot, the executive coaching and leadership developing company. He's the host of the Reboot podcast and the author of Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. He had previous roles as a partner at J.P. Morgan Partners, the PE division, private equity for all of you, of J.P. Morgan Chase, and he joined there from Flatiron Partners, which he launched in 1996 with his partner, Fred Wilson, which became really one of the storied VC firms in New York City. Now, the new book he has written is called Reunion. We're going to be talking about that today. And I actually have a personal connection to Jerry Although he didn't know who I was. I mean, so, you know, my, my ego now is getting crushed a little bit. <laughs> but I worked with Jerry right out of college. I worked at JP Morgan Partners. It was once called Chase Capital Partners. And I worked more with Fred Wilson. I didn't work with Jerry, but I knew who he was. He was a big guy. I was a junior guy. And so when we met on this Zoom that we do, it's actually a squad cast to do the podcast recording. I was like, Jerry. I used to work with you. And of course, we have friends in common and stuff. So it was really nice to see him. And and as you'll see in the beginning of the story, the beginning of the interview, he gets into that time in his life when we were working together. And little did I know, he was going through some really tough things. So Jerry's just a really thoughtful guy. If you listen to the Reboot podcast, he makes everybody cry. <laughs> it's really quite interesting. He just has a way because he's this coach and he goes deep with people that he gets people to go to places they might not have expected to go otherwise. And in the conversation today, you're going to see that in this conversation about empathy and how to find empathy for others, even if you're not quite sure how to look for that. Maybe you don't feel empathy with somebody. Well, he gives us the tools to try to find that by looking within. 
So it's a really interesting conversation. Jerry is super interesting. I think just somebody whose thinking is worth being exposed to. And we had a really good conversation, so I'm psyched about it. Now, my small ask this week is this. Listen to Faux Mondays next Monday. I'm going to be talking about a new initiative I am launching And I want you to be there for it. So if you're already listening every Monday, then this is the easiest small ask of your life. If you don't listen, subscribe so it shows up in your feed and you're ready on Monday to hear what I'm going to talk about. Big announcement, exciting stuff coming at you. All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I start every interview with the same question. So I started our conversation by asking Jerry this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Well, Given our some of our shared history, uh, Patrick, I would say it has to be the decision to leave venture capital, the decision to leave what became J.P. Morgan Partners, and uh, which I was 38 years old when I made that decision. I'm about to turn 60. God save me. Had I not made that decision, I don't think half of the good things in my life let alone all of the good things in my life that I experience now would it be happening. That's important to remember. And, you know, as you put me, I'm just thinking back to that time. Of course, we were at different points in our careers. I was like an analyst and you were a partner. But the organization was, to put it lightly, quite messy. And we were all living through the aftermath of the tech blow up in the early Mm -hmm. 2000s. And when I left and went off to business school, I felt like a great um, sort of weight was lifted from me because it wasn't things weren't going particularly well. Later in my career, I had a whole other career blow up that liberated me final my final liberation to do what I really was meant to do. I'm curious, you know, when you when you made that decision, yeah, things were tough, but you still were doing. You know, you had all the trappings of affirmation. You know, it's sort of like a you know great job at a big company and. And I was a partner you, at a big yeah. firm. We had $23 billion under management. How, how, did you, how did you find that that sort of – like what was the process of just deciding to leave and getting over all of the, you know, the, the pressure to stay or, or you know, the external pressure? Well, um, it's a relatively well-known story, but it was February 2002. And uh, if you recall the hell that was 2001 – I do. It was it was a pretty bad time, and uh, Fred Wilson, Beth Ferreira, and I, among others, uh, wound down our venture firm, Flatiron Partners, and then joined. Uh, Beth and I joined, and, and another woman named Carrie Racklin. And um, the truth was that I was in the midst of a major existential crisis. I was, I had a return of some deep and profound depression, and which culminated in a way, in a nader way, uh, in February 2002, where uh, the impulse to kill myself had come back. Mm. And the realization that if I did not change my life, I was going to die. And so when you ask what's, you know, a consequential decision, I would argue it was the decision in effect not to die, not to take my own life, coupled with the decision to leave J.P. Morgan, which I did at the end of that year. 
And whatever good I do in the world today, whether it's through my books or my coaching or my mellifluous voice in my Mm -hmm. podcast, Mm -hmm. it all stems from those decisions, that twinned decision to stay alive and to leave the circumstances that I were in. And to be clear, the depression wasn't because of where I was working but where I was working wasn't helping me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And for, for folks who are listening who recognize Beth Ferreira, she's been a guest a couple of times on the show. And so, and so this is, it's great to plumb back into the depths, but I want to come back into 2023 because mm-hmm. you've written a new book. It's called Reunion. And it is a really important book that talks about some things that, you know, I think have not been talked about enough mm-hmm. and that folks are going to, Get it. I think for some folks, and including myself, as I read it, it, it's not a comfortable read. It forces us to leave our <laughs> comfort zone, right? It's not, if we want it to be affirmed, um, right. you know, there are plenty of books to do that with. This is one that is more of a challenge to us. Talk right. about what brought you to write this book. Well, uh, you know, the story I tell, and I still, I tell this at the, the top of the introduction of the book, was uh, the summer of 2020. And if we all sort of go back in time and time travel, it felt like we were living through a dystopian science fiction novel, right? I mean, a pandemic, which we thought might be over in a few weeks, was in fact seemed like not ever going to end. And yet, despite that, uh, people were taking to the streets um, in large numbers to protest, among other things, the murder of George Floyd. And among the people who were taking to the streets was my daughter, Emma, who is now uh, 30. And it's important to understand that Emma is, as I often say, and trigger warning, I'm about to curse, fierce as fuck. And she's unafraid of speaking truth to power, including her father. And historically, she would often say to me, dad in that way that only a daughter can say, dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And that was a challenge to this white, straight, cisgender man who was very, very comfortable on his farm in Colorado in the foothills of the Rockies. And one night, like many other people, she started protesting She joined a protest in Brooklyn, and as they made their way across the Manhattan Bridge into Manhattan, uh, they were surrounded by police, and she began texting me about what to do if she got pepper sprayed. And it was then that I realized what she meant when she would say to me, it's not enough to be an ally, you have to be a co-conspirator. And in this case, what I leaned into was a a very large question, which in some ways is a follow-on question to the question that animated my first book, Reboot. That question, too, challenges people and is uncomfortable, and that is, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions in my life that I say I don't want? In Reunion, I extend that question to, how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world that I say I don't want. 
right? We don't want to see innocent people killed by police. We don't want to see innocent or not unarmed people taken down. We don't want to see babies shot in schools. But if we are not willing to look into that uncomfortable question of who benefits from this structure, then I don't know how we're going to change it. Yeah, and this book shows up at a time. I was, as I was reading through it, I was thinking everybody was so activated three years ago and they were making pledges and everybody was saying the right things. And, you know, and folks learn, it's not that people didn't learn things, but everybody reverts to the mean, not everybody, many people. And so then if you don't do the work, internal and external, to actually address the root causes, you just, you end up in the same place and, you know, nothing gets fixed. Patrick, that could be a mantra for everything in our lives, hmm. right? One of my uh, favorite teachings from one of my uh, Buddhist teachers uh, would be, may you be bombarded with coconuts of wakefulness. <laughs> I love that image because, you know, implicit in that image is that um, you're right. We tend to go to sleep. We tend to settle in and to accept as norm the fact that babies are being shot and that there's a direct relationship between our obsession with guns and our inability to confront a, a community-wide fear of the other person. Hmm. And notice, I'm trying to use language that isn't shaming, that isn't about producing guilt. It's actually about producing action, right? We have all benefited from going to sleep. May we be bombarded with coconuts of wakefulness. Wake up. Babies are being shot. And I keep dramatically pointing to that because if that doesn't cause us to act, what will? FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. So as we, as we have this conversation, you know, I'm just thinking about, you're talking about this and you're right. The way you're talking about it doesn't provoke defensiveness in me. I hope it doesn't for folks that are listening, but I think everybody, it's good to monitor ourselves and say, am I feeling defensive right now? Because maybe I have a gun or I know somebody has a gun or I, you know, I like, I grew up in Maine. I've shot a gun and it's, you know, and that's I, don't have, a, I, I, I have zero problem with people owning guns. Exactly. Exactly. What I have a problem with is our not drawing the link between our obsession with gun ownership and, and, you know, and, 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 the fact that there is this pervasive and manipulated mm-hmm. fear of other people. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize that phrase. It's not about the guns. It's about being manipulated. And the question, you know, in some ways, it's kind of like Watergate. Follow the money. Who benefits from division? Who benefits from the fact that we are uh, at each other's throats? And if we look at the moral responsibilities of business people, who is threatened when our old employer, J.P. Morgan Chase, mm-hmm. hands out pride flags, little six-inch pride flags for people to stick on their desk? Mm-hmm. Why is that a threat? What, uh, what are we doing? And who benefits from stoking that fear? So I'm going to ask you to answer that question. You've posed such a great question, and I'll turn it back on you. Okay. Well, I think that in all these structures, what history has taught us is those who hold the most power benefit from division. You know, look, Elie Wiesel, the brilliant philosopher who lived through and taught us so much about the Holocaust, says neutrality, said Neutrality always benefits the oppressor. Mm-hmm. So even neutrality, this notion, this, this quite understandable notion of, hey, we're Switzerland. We're not going to take a stand, right, belies the fact that Switzerland made billions and billions of dollars holding gold, right? There, there is a benefit that accrues to people when those of us who have power, and I acknowledge, and my daughter would make me acknowledge, that I have power. When I say, it's terrible, but I'm a business leader and I have nothing to do with this. Hold on there. I'm a human being before I am anything else. Mm. And there are human beings dying. Do you know what the number one cause of death 
for uh, transgender or gender questioning teens is? Uh, I believe it's dying by suicide. Am I correct? Right. Right. Okay. Hold on to that. The number one cause of death or the number one cause of injury for teenagers, for, for, for people 17 and younger, mm-hmm. is gun violence. Mm-hmm. Gun violence. What are we doing? And can we operate? Early in my career, I was a reporter. And I worked for a magazine called Information Week. And I got obsessed with, not surprisingly, this notion of corporate social responsibility. And I went out and I did a series of interviews with a now defunct company called Control Data Corporation, which at one point was one of the leaders in the technology sector. And I asked them, why did they put one of their plants in East New York, Brooklyn? And they told me that that decision came about as a direct response to the riots that they saw in places like Watts in California, Watts in LA. And Norbert, I forget his last name, who made the decision to bring employment to Brooklyn, said, quoting the head of the NAACP at the time, you can't do business in a community that's burning. Our communities are burning. Literally, I mean, we're, we're, we're speaking a day after or two or three days after the, the fires in Maui. Okay, when paradise is being burned. Last year, Siberia was burning. Two years ago, Australia was burning. Right? The climate is being assaulted. And somehow in this world of division, saying that, is provocative, is controversial, is being attacked. This doesn't make any sense to me. I think we have a moral responsibility to look up from our P&L statements and our stock charts and to say that there's a whole world out there that is hurting. And who benefits from us not looking? That's a really intriguing question. Now, Jerry, I completely agree. It is mind-blowing. Even if, even if you were to throw out the moral part of this, just simply the fact that business people need to operate in a predictable environment and have a climate that doesn't burn down their factories and have a society that is prosperous and can afford their services. And then you add in the moral component, it's extraordinarily compelling. Now in the book, in Reunion, you talk about the reunion process. Mm. I wanna get into that because you know we have people listening who aren't business leaders all over the world, not just America, all over the world, where the world is burning as well. Um, mm-hmm. And their societies have challenges and problems. And you're giving us a roadmap to begin the process of addressing some of these things. Talk about that roadmap. Yeah, and well, first of all, as I do in in every instance, in every work that I do, I do not ask you to undertake a process that I myself am unwilling to undertake. And I think that that's really an important stance. There is no finger wagging here. 
There's no telling people what they should do. So what I offer, though, is a process, and I do call it the reunion process. And the notion is to begin with reuniting not only with the myths of our ancestors, but the actual facts of our ancestors. Because we, our ancestors get lost in time. I'll give you an, an analogy. One of the, I had three friends contribute essays to make up the afterward. And I'm going to borrow an analogy uh, or a metaphor from one of uh, my friends, Virginia, Virginia Bauman. She identifies as queer. And she asked the questions, which I think is really powerful, which is, what happened to our queer members of our family tree, right? We can become very obsessed with trying to understand our, the roots of our past. But there are a whole people. They might be a trans person. They might be a queer person. They might be someone who just didn't fit the normative structure of our family. And we don't talk about those people. As Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote, in the Disney movie Encanto, we don't talk about Bruno, that family member who is a little bit odd, right? And in doing so, in not talking about those things, we give rise to this continuing process of not talking about those folks in our society today. We don't talk about, for example, the experience of our ancestors who may themselves have suffered famine, which, if you're in the United States, caused them to come to the United States. We don't talk about the pogroms that our ancestors may have experienced. We only move towards a safe state, a safe space, and we see them as resilience. In a similar fashion, we don't talk about the parts of ourselves that we don't particularly like. The parts of ourselves that are afraid of someone who doesn't look like me. Right? We don't have that conversation. And yet, we then live in a world where we're often tasked with creating conditions of love, safety, and belonging for other people. But the foundational work of understanding who I am and to whom I belong is skipped. That's, that's that melding of that radical self-inquiry, that work within, then turning those questions outward and saying, well, how can I make a real difference in the world? Even if I perceive myself as having no power. And so that process of acknowledging your ancestral history, how does one embark on that process? What, is the, what does it look like? Start asking questions. I'll yeah. tell you a quick story, okay? We did our, our immersive camps called boot camps a few months ago, and there was a participant who came to me, and uh, we were, I was talking about the book Reunion, and he came to me, and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what you said. And, you know, he grew up in Brazil and emigrated to the United States. And he said, um, I realized something. There's someone in our ancestral past that we have not talked about. And he said, it's my great-grandmother. 
And so I leaned in, and it turned out that his great-grandmother was owned and enslaved by his great-grandfather. And that the entire lineage of people stemmed from the rape of his great-grandmother. And so he said, I just feel this tremendous guilt and shame because I don't really know. And I said, well, you, you need to find out what her name was. And then he paused and he said, well, my father doesn't know. I said, I didn't ask you what your father knows. I said, you have to find out. You have to find her, lift her up, bring her back into your knowledge. Because that ghost, that ancestor is going to remain a ghost until you acknowledge her existence and welcome her back into your life. FOMO. FOMO. And when you do that, when you go through that process, and we all have this in our families. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I can't think of anybody who doesn't. I mean, it's really, especially yeah, at it's, the age. It's shocking, right? Yeah. yeah. I, listen, we've all, those of us who have done Ancestry or 23, we, we will find things. And, right. and, we will, and, and we will look into them where we should do. And when we discover those things, this is a beautiful question because I, I think I've heard so many of these stories, but I don't think people are connecting the dots to what can I then do with that information to make me navigate, to allow myself to navigate the world in a way that is better. How does yeah. one connect that back in? Well, that's the power of empathy. That's mm-hmm. the power of compassion. Empathy as a, as a core component of compassion. So understanding the experience, say, of our ancestors and really internalizing it. What was it like, for example, for my Italian grandmother, my mother's mother, to come through Ellis Island with, say, tuberculosis, but it went undetected, and but for a chalk mark on her lapel, she might have been turned away. What is it like? What was it like for her emotionally? Now, I take that in, and then I turn once again to the southern border of the United States. And would I continue to allow babies to try to crawl through razor wire? I don't know what the answer to undocumented immigration to the United States is. I do know that Congress has to get its shit together and has failed to do so for 30 years, and that people have benefited from us having a broken immigration policy. But I can tell you this, razor wire doesn't seem to be the answer. Not when I see a child crawling through the mud as not that different from my 13-year-old grandma or my grandmother when she was 13 years old. See, there's a relationship here. You know, the name of this show is FOMO Sapiens. Well, the truth is we're all homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. We are all people. And we fail to see that. And so then we have a failure of imagination. We fail to see that, yeah, there's an answer to the problem on the border of the United States. We're pretty smart people. We can figure this out. 
And it doesn't mean razor wire and walls, or it doesn't mean, you know, just an open, it just means empathy and compassion. And you cannot be empathetic if you don't know to whom you belong. That's the key. So I'm just going to repeat this back to you, what I've heard, and make sure that I'm getting it right so that we, we are on the same page because it is, uh, it's a really thoughtful way of approaching life, which is to say, connect with the people in your past, in your lineage who have been challenged by life circumstances, internalize and understand those things because we're willing to do those when it's our own people, of course. Like it's like, it's not the other, mm -hmm. it's inside of us. And then through that, build the empathy to build a bridge of understanding into other people who are suffering or dealing with conditions like that, be able to see things from their perspective. And in doing so, we can come up with better policies. We can be better leaders or bosses exactly. or employees. And better people. Yeah. You, you know, look, um, I've not made this connection until you've just reframed it and, and repeated back my words in that way. I remember going to a Buddhist meditation retreat led by Ani Pema Chodron, famous Buddhist nun. And um, she and I have, a, uh, a, have had a lovely student-teacher relationship. She's the teacher, I'm the student. And at one point in the gathering, I went up to the microphone and I had just begun working with some difficult experiences of... of uh, abuse that I lived through as a child. And I said, which is one of the key points of meditation is to work with what arises, right? And that's one of the things that was arising were the memories that I had dismembered from myself. And I said, you know, Anipema, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to be with these feelings. And she gave me a very specific instruction. She said, the next time and every time you sit down to meditate, I want you to recall the experiences of all the children, past, present, and future, who themselves have experienced similar circumstances. Now, that's challenging. That's really challenging to open up your heart to take in the experience of those who are suffering. But a magical thing happened, Patrick. My ability to be with what happened to me became better, became easier. My ability to process the truth of my own experience became easier because I opened my heart to the very painful experience of what was happening to others so that I can then take action to alleviate suffering around me. You want to know what really motivates me as a coach? It's that instruction. That instruction. All right, everybody, this is your challenge. And you, you can go pick up the new book, Reunion. And you can check out the Reboot podcast because I think, you know, this is... Uh, it's not easy, right? But like not, none of the good stuff is, but this is an opportunity to do things in a very different way. Like I, I have to say, this is not something that I think many of us have thought about doing before, but it has tremendous value. So go check out Jerry's stuff. You can find a website about the book at reunion.reboot.io. You can also find Jerry on Twitter. He's 
beloved on Twitter at Jerry Colonna. Jerry Colonna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me such thoughtful questions, Patrick, and thank you for the invitation. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.